So we read Romans 6, 15 to 23 last week. I'm going to read the first verse from that section, and then I'm going to read chapter 7, verses 1 to 6 tonight. Let's read God's holy word. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. And then on to chapter 7. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound, by her husband, bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another, <clears throat> another man. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. This is God's word for us, his people, today. So in chapter 6, verse 15, Paul asks a couple questions. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? Paul is basically asking, if we're saved by grace, does that mean we're free to do whatever we like? If we're saved by grace, can we just keep on sinning? And of course, you heard, you know how Paul answers that question. The next phrase in the NIV there is, by no means, absolutely not. Now, the language that Paul uses there, that original Greek, is really, really strong. It's hard to find a good translation in English, but if you imagine Paul screaming at the page, you get the idea. Absolutely not. By no means. Off the table. Don't even think about it. Receiving God's grace is not a license to sin freely, Paul tells us. And last week, we looked at Romans 6, 15 to 23, and in verses 16 to 23, Paul uses this imagery of slavery to get his point across. He says there, you'll either be slaves to sin or you'll be slaves to God. You've got to serve somebody, and what you choose to do becomes what you obey. What you obey becomes your master. And so says Paul, if you keep on choosing to sin, you're submitting yourself to slavery to sin, and slavery to sin leads to death. But if you obey God's will, then you grow in righteousness and you find new life. So that's how Paul explains his point at the end of chapter 6 there. And then we come to the beginning of chapter 7, and Paul is still talking in the same general area, but he gives a little different illustration. And in these verses that we read for tonight, Paul gives us an illustration for marriage. And that illustration is intended to show clearly that death breaks the binding power of the law. Death breaks the binding power of the law. As Paul says, people are married to each other as long as they live. If one spouse dies, the other is free to marry another person. 
But if a woman marries another man while her spouse is still living, then she's being unfaithful to that first spouse. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law that binds her to him, and she can marry someone else without any problem. The death of one spouse releases the other spouse from the law that binds them together. Now, if you really push that analogy to the breaking point and you try to work out every little detail and make absolutely everything fit, there's some things that get a little complicated and a little fuzzy with that analogy. But Paul's basic point is very clear. Death breaks the power of the law. And as he explains that point, humanity was bound to the law, humanity was controlled by the law, but death somehow cut those bonds and set us free from that law. And if you look at the different cultures, the different peoples, everybody around the world has, has some sense of being bound to the law. Even if it's some really twisted version of things, people in general have some sense that there's some things that are right and there's some things that are wrong. On some level, everybody believes in the law and everybody feels some kind of compulsion to follow it. Now, someone might tell you, and this is probably more common in our culture than other cultures, Someone might tell you, oh no, I don't believe in the law. There's no order to the world. We just do what we want. But if you really push them, people are going to end up almost inevitably coming up with some sense that there are things that are right and wrong, that there are things that you should do and shouldn't do. Someone might say there is no law, but if you try to trip them when they walk by, they're going to say, hey, you shouldn't do that. Someone might say there's no law in this world, But if you steal their lunch from the company refrigerator, they're still going to come to you and say, hey, quit stealing my lunch. You shouldn't do that. And the minute someone says should, they've admitted that a law exists and they've admitted that there's some sense in which that law applies to people. Whether they think so or not, most people have this sense that the law exists, that there's these things that they need to do and that there's things especially that other people should do or should not do. And certainly, if we look at the Bible, the Jewish people in the Old Testament were an especially clear case of people who had a law to follow. Commentators look at these verses, and they argue back and forth over whether Paul is talking about sort of the creational law that God put into creation at the beginning that shapes every culture, or whether Paul is talking about specifically the Mosaic law the law that was given to Moses that he passed on to God's people in particular. And in the end, I don't think it makes too much difference with how we interpret these verses. But the Old Testament law and the Jewish people were certainly a really clear case study of people who had a specific law and of people who found it burdensome and people who couldn't make it work. And ultimately, as Paul develops his point in these verses, the law here becomes almost synonymous with sin at the end of chapter 6. The law somehow, which is given by a good God to live good lives, gets twisted and turned around, and the law leads to sin, which leads to death. Somehow, in all the mixed up things that happened after the fall, the law got twisted around, and now, instead of giving us freedom from evil, it binds us to evil. It keeps us stuck in that relationship that we have with sin and death. But then Paul says, death undoes that connection. And if all we had was that, death undoes that connection, it'd be kind of confusing, it'd be hard to see how all that works. But then Paul ties that 
to Christ's death. It's not just death in general that frees us from the law. It is the fact that Christ died for us. It is the suffering and the death of Christ that frees us from sin. When we couldn't get away from the crushing burden of the law, Jesus came and set us free. And as we talked about last week, that freedom doesn't mean that we get to do whatever we want. People who sin are ultimately slaves to sin. But what the freedom that Christ gives us enables us to do is to develop a new allegiance, to have a new fundamental relationship that defines us. Through Christ's death, applied to us by the grace of God, we've died to sin and we've died to the law. So now we're able to enter into a new relationship. And that's the basic point of the analogy that Paul offers us in verses 1 to 3. Christ has died and Christ's death frees us from the mastery of sin. Christ's death, in a sense, as Paul puts it, frees us from being married to the law, married to sin, married to death, and it opens the way for us to have a new defining relationship. As Paul says it, we die to the law so that we can live with Christ. Again and again here, Paul is making the point that we can't serve more than one master. We can't have more than one defining relationship in our life. We're either married to the old Adam, to our sinful nature, to the forces of evil, to the law, the sin, the death that bind us, or we're committed to Christ, to the new Adam, to the one who makes things right, to the one who cares for us and brings us new life. We've died to the old so that we can live to the new. We die to the law so that we can live with Christ. To put it bluntly, spiritual polygamy is not an option. Physical polygamy isn't an option for Christians either, but spiritual polygamy is not an option. You cannot be married to the law and sin and death and at the same time be married to Christ. Now, that, of course, is not what you would call new news. We know that we can only serve one God. But in a lot of places and times around the world, people didn't really get that. If you looked around the ancient world, and even if you look at a lot of the more traditional religions today, people expected to go to different gods for different reasons. They didn't expect to have an exclusive relationship with one God who would provide them with everything that they needed and who they would serve exclusively. You'd go to a certain God to get this sort of blessing, and you'd go to another God to get this sort of blessing. You'd go to this God to enjoy this particular thing, and that God to enjoy this other thing, and all the gods would have their particular prices. But besides paying up and getting benefits, you didn't expect to have a commitment to a particular God. You still see this a lot in traditional African religions, for example, where people basically go to gods in a marketplace setting. You give some goods you get some services. You give some money, you offer some prayers, you offer a sacrifice, and then the God is bound to do what you want. But in Christianity, our relationship with God is not a market relationship. We have nothing, nothing to offer God. Nothing we have is worth enough to pay for what God does for us. So Romans gives us a different image. Our relationship with God isn't a business relationship. We aren't in the marketplace here. Instead, this is a covenantal, committed relationship. 
Christ's death brings us into a relationship with God that we can maybe best understand, not with the marketplace, but with this analogy of marriage. Now, it's interesting and unintentional, you can call it providential if you like, that we got to this text in Romans the same day that we looked at Ephesians 5 in the morning service. And if you weren't here this morning or you just don't remember, Ephesians 5 is that passage where Paul draws an analogy between human marriage and believers' relationship with Christ. Now there, Paul is a bit more focused on the submission and the love that should characterize Christian marriages. But he draws an analogy between that kind of relationship and the relationship that Christ has with us, his people. Now, obviously, that, mer- that, an- that analogy doesn't work on every single possible level. But the Bible does give us several times this analogy that marriage, marriage is something like the relationship we have with God. And marriage is probably the most fundamental relationship in our lives. It comes to define us. It changes our legal status. When we become married, we have certain legal responsibilities and certain legal privileges that we didn't have before. And marriage isn't just a legal thing. Marriage also changes who we are as people. Our spouses define and shape who we are. Now, in human marriage, that can either be life-changing or toxic, but our connection with God always brings new life. Now, this morning, Pastor Greg pointed out that in the Christian view, marriage isn't a contract, it's a covenant. And a contract is more of a marketplace image. I'll do these things for you so that you'll do these things for me. And if one side or the other doesn't keep their end of the bargain, you can just wipe out the contract and walk away. End of discussion. But that's not what a covenant is like. A covenant is much more of a personal commitment. It's a promise to stick around even if things get hard. It's a promise to sacrifice your own good for the good of the other person, and for the good of the relationship. In that way, marriage mirrors the commitment that Christ has to us, his church. Ephesians 5 and this text in Romans talks about how Christ gave himself up for the church. It talks about how Christ cleansed the church and made it holy and blameless. Christ loves the church so much as the whole body and as each individual that he sacrificed himself for us. So if we belong to Christ, if this is the picture that we have of that relationship, are we free to sin? Well, absolutely not, Paul said back in 6.15. And looking at it through this analogy of marriage, we can see that if we have this kind of relationship with Christ, we can't be off playing around with other things. The relationship, by definition, excludes fooling around with other people or other things. It's not that we do certain things for Jesus and Jesus does certain things for us, and if one side or the other misses some of the obligations, the other one is free to do what they want. It's that Christ has entered into a wholehearted covenant with us. He has made the ultimate sacrifice for us and brought us into a relationship that defines who we are. And in response, if we truly believe that Christ has died for us, our whole lives need to be committed to Christ and to building up the relationship with him. There is no part of our lives that we can say, Jesus, you can come this far, but the rest of my life belongs to me. 
You can do this much, and I'll do this much, and that's it. That is not how our relationship with Christ works. Christ has given everything for us, and so he claims all of the parts of our lives when we enter into that relationship with him. Christ died for us so that we could live with him. So if we belong to Christ, just like if we're married, that means every single part of our lives is defined and determined and shaped by that relationship. I'll have more to say about that in a minute, but I want to pause for a minute here and just talk about marriage and singleness. Now, Pastor Greg talked about some of these things a bit this morning, but I think it's a topic that we could revisit with Prophet briefly tonight. One challenge when we talk about marriage and when we use marriage as an illustration is what we do with those in our midst who aren't married. If marriage is one of the closest analogies we have to our relationship with God, if we talk about marriage as this great thing, as this great gift, what does that say to those of us who aren't married and what does that say about those of us who aren't married? Now, as a married person, I don't have a whole lot of ability to speak into this, but talking to my single friends, talking to single people I know, I know that often when we talk about marriage, not intentionally, but often we exclude people who are single. Our church life sometimes makes people who are single, for whatever reason, feel like they kind of exist on the margins, like they aren't really fully people, like they don't really belong in the same way that others do. So I think there's a few things we can say, even as we think about this analogy of marriage to our relationship with God, there's a few things that we can say even to and for the single people in our midst. First off, we need to emphasize that we all are able to live with God. Regardless of whether we're married or single, regardless of anything else in our lives, all of us have access to the joys and the struggles of belonging fully to Christ. We are part of Christ's bride, the church. Now, that doesn't replace a human marriage. It doesn't do away with the struggles of singleness or the struggles of human marriages. But the truth is that any human relationship we could have is only a faint shadow, an echo, an analogy of the relationship that all of us can have with God. God is the only one who will never let us down. God is the only one who is able to love and care and take care of us fully and completely. For all of us as believers, the relationship that most defines and shapes our lives will ultimately be our relationship with God. Whatever our marital status, we ultimately belong to God. That is the relationship that defines us, and that's where all of us need to find our ultimate identity and security. But still, we as a church need to have on our radar how we care for the unmarried among us. How do we care for people who haven't yet gotten married? How do we care for people who were married and are no longer? How do we care for people who just never got married and probably never will? Now, I don't have a lot of answers to that question tonight, but I think we need to keep asking, how can we as the body of Christ care for each other? And in particular, how can we care for the members of our community who are sometimes a little more on the margin, who sometimes don't quite fit in our nice little boxes, who sometimes find life a little bit more difficult? The key point in this text is that we belong to Christ. 
but that also means that we as a church belong to each other. So let's continue to reflect on how we can care for each other and how we can build each other up. And caring for our fellow church members is one very clear way that we can bear good fruit as God's people. So if we go to verses 5 and 6 in our text, Paul talks about how when we were controlled by the sinful nature, we bore fruit for death. But now that we're in Christ, we bear good fruit. We used to live according to the law, the written code, the old way of doing things, but now we live according to the Spirit. And here again, Paul is talking about a shift in allegiance. He's talking about a shift in relationship. Now that word in verse 5 that the NIV translates as sinful nature, that thing that controls us, that leads us to sin, that word is actually a really, really complicated word. Its most literal meaning is flesh, but it can mean about 12 different things. It can mean flesh, it can mean physical body, it can mean the world, it can mean forces of evil, it can mean sinful nature, it can mean all kinds of different things. So translating it is always kind of a bear. But in this particular text, it seems like the sinful nature sense there almost is a personal thing. It seems like it's almost talking about a demonic force, a power that wants to come and control us. It's something malevolent and evil. The sinful nature is something that wants to grab hold of us, it wants to abuse us, and it ultimately wants to bring us down to death. If we use the illustration of marriage that Paul has going in this passage, the sinful nature is the old man. It's the abusive spouse. It's the one who wants to get us under control and beat us down. This is a controlling force that wants us to keep walking the old way to death. But Romans tells us that Christ rescued us from that controlling power. Because of Christ's work, we have been set free from that controlling sinful nature, from that dominating force of evil. We don't have to walk down that road anymore. Now we have a new controlling power. We have a new person to connect to. We have a new person who leads and guides us. And that is the Spirit of God. And unlike the old power that wanted to bring us down to death, the Spirit of God wants to lead us on and on to greater eternal life. The Spirit frees us from all the junk that we used to be enslaved to, The Spirit keeps working in us to clean out the junk, to make our lives better, to make us better people. The Spirit takes us away from the things that enslave us and that abuse us. It sets us free to live with Christ who lives, who died for us, who wants us to live with Him forever. So let me wrap up by reminding us again that we belong body and soul in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We belong body and soul in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus has saved us from the forces of evil that wanted to control and abuse and ultimately bring us to death. As the Heidelberg Catechism says, Jesus sets us free from the tyranny of the devil and death. And Jesus brings us to live with him forever. Jesus gives us eternal life 
with him. Christ has given us everything we need. May we respond by living according to his spirit.